Bottom of the hour, that makes it go time for the midday program on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Dirk Christensen. Welcome to it. We're going to guide you through a whole lot of information in the course of the next several hours here. We've got Wimbledon. We've got business. We have ag headlines with Jesse Harding. I might be confused. Mm -hmm. There's a good possibility of that. But I feel like it's a lot hotter than it actually is. You feel as though it is. It's more hot than what the thermometer says. Yes, you're talking heat index. Yes, it's a little crazy. I think you're right. And then there are some places that are saying it's going to feel like a 105, maybe 110 today. Nope, I'm out. You're out. (laughs) I'm doing that. Good thing we're here in the air conditioning. This is another one of those days where... When you're in this business, you're glad you get paid to talk. Dave Thrill had it yeah, right. And there's air conditioning. Yeah. Yes, Dave Thrill had it very right. Having a job in radio sure beats working, mm-hmm. in other words. Yeah, yesterday. Spent part of yesterday in the park, and that was a deal that would mm-hmm. melt your bonbons, yeah. I will tell you. Yeah. So we'll talk about that heat at the 1213, staying hydrated, heat stress, that type of thing at the 1213. For the 1219, Shaley Peters is joined with Extension Associate Professor and Policy Specialist for the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, Brad Lubin discussing results from a study being conducted looking at the relationship between technology adaption and profitability in precision agriculture. For the newsmaker, Dave Montgomery is the author of the new book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. And Joe discusses that with him and integrating some new farming practices to continue to preserve the soil. And then finally, for the 117, Shaley is joined with Rabobank Research, agribusiness grain and oilseed analyst Stephen Nicholson, discussing their most recent report that looks at the declining wheat acres that we've seen over the last few years. Look forward to it all. Thank you, Jesse. And Jason over here on sports. Home run derby tonight in Miami for All-Star Week. It's sweet. Uh, I'd put my money on the rookie, Aaron Judge from New York. He has been nailing it, hasn't he? He's a big, big, strong man. He's seen a lot of home (laughs) runs. But this will be the first time he's ever kind of been in that situation. We will see. But when you got the eye of the tiger, it seems like when guys get hot on that, they just can't yep. be stopped. Or they mess up their swing and then they go in a slump <laughs> for two weeks after the all-star break. We've seen that happen, too. That's right. So we'll touch on that. Also, we'll hear from former Husker Jared Craig. Of course, he is getting ready for his second year with the Denver Broncos. There's been some change with the Broncos, including the head coaching situation. We will get Jared's thoughts on that. And uh, we'll get you up to date on what's going on at Wimbledon as the fortnight continues all right very good and bob brogan has business headlines stocks are edging a little bit higher in trading today led by gains in technology companies uh, stocks were down a little bit earlier banks health care and real estate companies fell keeping gains for major indexes in check meanwhile abercrombie no longer for sale that's off the auction block apparently um so that's the market's kind of reacting to that a little bit. Also, uh, the EU is taking a dim view of uh, the Brexit plan. So that's some of the things making news today. Also, uh, German prosecutors looking into uh, whether the um, manipulation of smog control equipment, I guess, on Volkswagens maybe extends to Porsche oh boy. and an American subsidiary or the possible manipulation of diesel emissions. So that's what's going on right now. When people getting caught with their fingers in the pot, it's all coming up for you on Midday. 
Okay, here's uh, here's the guy to hold responsible. <laughs> no, just the messenger now. <laughs> All right, I'm always trying to lay the blame on yeah. uh, on Paul Perkins, but here we go to find out how hot is it for Coolman Repair today. Yeah, it was very hot yesterday in Nebraska. It made it up to 109 in Valentine. And comparison's sake, that's only 9 degrees behind the nation's high of 118 yesterday at Death Valley, California. And that's Death Valley. Yeah, and winter South Dakota, they got up to 112, which is just to the northeast of Valentine. They were nearly the winter. Yeah, exactly. And right now, they're getting a little bit of light rain into northeast, uh, north-central Nebraska. A little bit of that activity in between Ainsworth and Spencer. And temperatures are actually fairly nice in Valentine right now. I have some cloud cover and a temperature of 77. We do have some cloud cover moving through north-central to west-central Nebraska, basically from about O'Neill to North Platte and points to the west there. A little bit of cloud cover that will be migrating to the east today. It's all on the outer edges of that what we like to call the ring of fire this year, that upper-level ridge of high pressure, some moisture riding up and around that ridge. We call it the ring of fire. We're starting to get some of that monsoonal moisture up from the southwest. Unfortunately, that monsoonal moisture is not going to pan out in the way of appreciable rain for much of Nebraska and Kansas over the next couple of weeks. We will see that cold front that moved through the state earlier. That's going to give us some slightly cooler temperatures today than we had yesterday with that triple-digit heat. Uh, that cold front will stall out right near the Nebraska-Kansas border today. North of the front, temperatures in the 90s, but along and south of the front, we're going to be in the low 100s over southwest Nebraska into northern Kansas. Thunderstorm chances mostly capped today due to the warmer air in the upper levels of the atmosphere, but a few thunderstorms may develop, but it's not very likely. Late this evening into the overnight, we will see a thunderstorm chance with that monsoonal moisture riding up into the Nebraska sand hills. Some thunderstorms expected to develop across the sand hills and track to the east but it looks like the better chances of rain with those systems going to be across northern nebraska that front begins to move back to the north tomorrow as a warm front thunderstorms could form along that front as some warmer air builds back to the north another front will sag south on wednesday and be the focus for some late day and evening thunderstorms on into thursday night and that'll actually cooler temperatures off to just about slightly above normal for this time of year Friday into the weekend, that upper-level ridge of high pressure expanding east a little bit more to keep our temperatures warm with mainly dry conditions. That ridge of high pressure plays into our long-term forecast and dominates the uh, forecast for the next couple of weeks. Temperatures for Nebraska, Kansas, and a large majority of the nation forecast to be warmer than normal this weekend through July 23rd. This solid in time, that's the hottest time of the year from mid-July to mid-August. A high likelihood in Nebraska and Kansas of below normal rainfall this weekend through the 23rd. In fact, there's a pretty big bullseye over central and east uh, Nebraska and Kansas during that time period. Weather factors driving the market trade include widely variable rainfall in the central U.S. and continued drought over the northern plains. Periodic rain and thunderstorms will continue across the eastern third of the U.S. with the greatest concentration from the Midwest into the northeast U.S. Rain will be spottier as you head into the plains, and there's going to be a broad divide in rainfall across the Midwest over the next few days. Dry and hot conditions will continue to increase the stress to corn and soybeans, especially in Nebraska, possibly in western Iowa. Central Iowa and eastward, not as hot and dry, and will have more favorable conditions. Significant losses to spring wheat in the northern plains can be expected as limited rain and above-normal temperatures continue the stress on spring wheat. 
in the heading and filling stage now. Losses to pollinating corn also likely in the northern plains. Row crops in the southern plains will undergo stress from hot and dry conditions this week. Across the Canadian prairies are seeing some rain today and tomorrow, but it's only going to help to ease the crop stress a little bit because hot and dry conditions are expected after that for at least five days. And rain is still needed in dry areas of north-central Ukraine, but there is a good chance of that needed rain by the end of the week. Heat advisories have been thrown up for good portions of uh, Kansas to south of the border and into uh, south uh, east Nebraska particularly, right? Yes, yeah, so southeast Nebraska on into northeast Kansas. They do have a heat advisory for today. In some areas, it could feel as high as 110 because of that heat and humidity. Yikes. All right. Our ag weather brought to you by uh, Coolman Repair. We want to thank them for their sponsorship. And when we, like you, need weather anytime, what it we do is just go to krbn.com. Look at agriculture information on the Roll Radio Network and Jesse Harding. The states of Arkansas and Missouri both took action Friday to ban the use of dicamba mix herbicide applications in their respective states after waves of complaints from farmers who are not using the technology. The Arkansas Legislative Council Executive Subcommittee on Friday chose to take no action on a vote by the state plant board to ban the use of any dicamba mix herbicides in the state which basically means Arkansas will ban the use of dicamba for at least 120 days. The hearing Friday morning voted on that notice to approve the plant board's recommendation. It kicked the decision up to the Arkansas Legislative Council Executive Committee, which met on Friday afternoon, and the ban takes an effect starting at 12.01 a.m. on July 11th and suggests there could be a lot of dicamba spraying across the state this week and on Monday. Initially, any farmer caught using dicamba mix herbicide would be hit with a $1,000 fine. However, a fine will go up to $25,000 after August 1st. And in Missouri, hours after the vote, in Arkansas, the Missouri Department of Agriculture director issued a temporary stop sale, use, or removal order on all herbicides that contain dicamba. The Missouri ban is considered temporary, said a spokeswoman for the state agriculture department, until a solution is reached. Monsanto issued a statement in response to Arkansas's ban on Friday stating that while the company is concerned about reports of potential crop injury, the decision to ban dicamba is premature, saying that they do sympathize with any farmers expecting crop injury. Mother Nature isn't giving a break to those who work outside, so staying hydrated is important. Susan Littlefield has more. With heat indexes across our listing area to reach anywhere from the upper 90s into the 100s, it's important for our producers and those that work outside to stay hydrated. Dr. Gerald Lucky is a family practitioner at Butler County Clinic in David City, Nebraska. Well, it's very important to prevent heat exhaustion. What happens is when you get dehydrated, your blood pressure drops down, you start getting lightheaded. If you stop sweating, that's a concern that you need to, to stop doing what you're doing, uh, get out of the sun, start drinking some water, and let yourself kind of recover. Um, if, you, if you don't, you could end up basically passing out just because of, of low blood pressure and some electrolyte disturbances. So uh, it is important to listen to what your body is telling you and try to uh, uh, respond appropriately. And Dr. Lucky reminds us, as warm as it's going to be over the next couple of days and the amount that you're going to sweat, 
you've got to drink a minimum between 10 and 12 8-ounce glasses of water a day. And stay away from those sugary drinks. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Rabbi Research Food and Agribusiness Group took a closer look at the U.S. wheat crop. We get more from Shaley Peters. With wheat acres slowly declining over the last several decades and given this current season, U.S. wheat acres are at their lowest point in more than 100 years. Rabbo Research Food and Agribusiness Group grains and oilseed analyst Stephen Nicholson talks about how this has created the current volatile market. When you have acres declining like they have in wheat, I think the market over time when we look forward is going to respond a lot more volatile like we're seeing now if there's a production issue. But I think what you're seeing now, what's happening is that we're getting this hard red winter wheat crop out of the ground and finding that it's better than we thought, but the quality is not there. And now you've got people on, on the end user side, flour millers, saying, well, now what am I going to do? And so you go back and you look and so, say, well, if I need protein, I'll go to hard red spring wheat. That's been a look at agriculture information on the Roll Radio Network. I'm Jesse Harding. New results are in from a study going on by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln looking at precision agriculture, adoption, and profitability. I'm Shaley Peters, and you're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Today, I visit with Brad Lubin. He is an Extension Associate Professor and Policy Specialist with UNL. And Brad, you were one of those that was working on this study along with other co-workers. Why don't you first start off by telling us exactly what you're doing with this study and giving a little background. You bet. Well, we're, we're studying the true economic impact of adopting precision agriculture technology. And we're looking at the true economic impact. As, as noted, this is one of the first studies that can tie actual adoption patterns to financial outcomes through the, uh, the record keeping and through the data we're able to access in collaboration and cooperation with the Nebraska Farm Business Association. This is really an outgrowth of research that started about three years ago to look at precision agriculture issues, big ag data issues, and some of the adoption questions and policy questions that producers had. Well, as we worked on it and we worked with an undergraduate student named Mike Castle, Mike continued that work and that survey work and was able to continue it as a master's student to study through a new survey of producer members of the Farm Business Association. So naturally, the next question is, what were some of the results? Results you saw when looking at this, right? Well, the the simplest thing to note is we we clearly see widespread adoption of precision ag technology, and this group of producers might be uh, uh, more management oriented or, or more progressive than the overall average. But regardless, there's widespread adoption of technology across the ag sector that we know of. But that. Adoption has also come over the last 20 years or so of generally very strong returns and growing returns in agriculture. Prior to the most recent, uh, the current downturn here, we had more than a decade of solid growth in, in ag income and profitability and strong markets. Thus, we saw adoption climb right along with profitability. And the analysis could show that those two are certainly very closely related to each other. But it's also difficult to say, did adoption of precision ag drive increased profitability, or did increased profitability drive adoption of new technology, or did they feed off of each other, uh, which we might well conclude is, is the likely answer, that there's some feedback in there as well. To take that analysis further, we, we tried to study the adoption of precision ag and actually look at the resulting impacts on profitability, sort of a pre-adoption versus post-adoption. 
and it's in the analysis of, of that that we get this impact of adopting technology and this increased impact uh, on profitability over time, meaning that there's a learning curve involved here. The first few years of adoption are not necessarily more profitable. In fact, they might be less profitable on paper because you're uh, investing in new technology, but you're learning how to use it, maybe limited in how many different ways you can utilize it and benefit from it, or in the case of collecting yield data to make better production decisions, you might need to collect several years of data before you can really make an informed decision. So there's this potential learning curve there where benefits start slow and then they climb over time until at some point we envision maybe the benefits are fully realized and they and they level off. But that learning curve suggests that the benefits of technology increase over time. Uh, in the first few years, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly how much benefit there is of the technology. All right. Thanks, Brad. Brad Lubin, Extension Associate Professor and Policy Specialist with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, talking about the study going on on precision agriculture adoption and profitability. For more on this, you can visit RuralRadio.com. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Shaylee Peters. You're listening to the Midday Program on the Rural Radio Network, and it's uh, time to check sports now with Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Derek. Well, fresh off of launching two more long balls in Miami's final game before the break, Giancarlo Stanton returns to Marlins Park to defend his all-star home run derby crown tonight. Now, no doubt many fans would like to see Stanton swing away against Yankees rookie sensation Aaron Judge for the title. First-round matchups are Stanton versus Gary Sanchez. Judge takes on Justin Bohr. It's Cody Ballinger against Charlie Blackman, and Mike Moustakas battles Miguel Sano. Four long training camps will start up in the NFL. Jared Crick of Cozad is getting set for his second year with Denver. Former Husker talks about the changes he's seen with new head coach Vance Joseph. Obviously, with a new coach coming in, he's going to you know, set a tempo a little bit different, uh, you know, as new coaches usually do. Um, but we had a good summer so far. I mean, guys adjusted. And the good thing about this, it's not like we're a team, you know, coming off a losing record where our coach got fired. It was a, you know, kind of a peculiar case with Coach Coos, you know, kind of just stepping away for health reasons. So uh, it wasn't like he had to come in and, you know, you know, put his foot down and, and be, uh, you know, kind of a dictator figure or any means like that. The Broncos are set to open up training camp on July 25th. Kansas State senior quarterback Jesse Ertz and junior defensive back D.J. Reed were named to this year's preseason watch list for the Maxwell and McNarrick Awards. Now the honors are the first for each player's career. Ertz is the first Wildcat to be up for the Maxwell Award given to the College Player of the Year since 2014 when quarterback Jake Waters was one of 20 semifinalists. Ertz was the MVP of the 2016 Texas Bowl and was one of three quarterbacks in school history to rush for more than 1,000 yards and throw for more than 1,500 yards in a season. He also recorded the school's 15th 1,000-yard rushing season while he was the third-fastest player in school history to reach 1,000 rushing yards. Well, the Husker baseball program picked up some good news this weekend as Scott Schreiber and Luis Alvarado have decided to come back to school despite being drafted last month in the Major League Baseball draft. At Wimbledon, five-time champion Venus Williams returned to the quarterfinals with a straight-set victory today. On the men's side, Andy Murray is in the quarters for the 10th straight year. The defending champion won in four sets on center court. He's won two titles at the All-England Club in his previous nine quarterfinal matches. He's 7-2. 
That is a look at sports. Have a great day. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. Partly cloudy with a chance of thunderstorms through the night tonight. I'm Dave Schroeder with a check of news. A smoky fire has destroyed a northeast Nebraska business. Firefighters were dispatched a little after 3 p.m. yesterday to the Tiger Town Food and Floral Center in downtown Osmond, Nebraska. The three-story brick building wasn't open at the time and no injuries reported. The blaze left the Pierce County community without a grocery store for its 770 or so residents. Firefighters from Pierce, Plainview, Randolph, and Wausau were sent to help the Osmond Department, and an aerial truck from Norfolk also joined the fight. Osmond residents supplied the firefighters with bottled water as the temperature soared into the low 90s. The cause of the fire is being investigated. A new mosque and cultural center has opened in Nebraska. Nearly 3,000 people toured the American Muslim Institute in Omaha yesterday. Attendees had the opportunity to tour six stations, including a prayer room. The 35-acre center is part of the Tri-Faith Initiative, which is made up of Jewish, Christian, and Islamic faiths. Iman Mohammed Jamal Duhadi says the project comes at a very crucial time of violence, divisiveness, and intolerance in our nation. He says the Institute's goal is to promote education, peace, and brotherhood. The Institute is located at the Tri-Faith Initiative Commons campus, which is also housing a Jewish synagogue. A Christian church, a park, and community center are expected to be completed by 2018. Institute leaders say they hope to see more tri-faith centers built in the U.S. Westar Energy and Great Plains Energy, the parent company of Kansas City Power & Light, are proposing a new plan to merge after Kansas regulators scuttled an earlier deal. The two companies announced a deal today that would form a utility with a combined equity value of $14 billion. The announcement comes after the Kansas Corporation Commission in late April denied a proposed $12 billion sale of Topeka-based Westar to Great Plains Energy, which is based in Kansas City, Missouri. U.S. Senator Jerry Moran briefly made a tiny western Kansas town the focus of a roiling national debate on overhauling health care. He did it by holding a town hall meeting that attracted dozens of out-of-area visitors and a gaggle of reporters to Palco. The resulting event felt out of place in a county where President Donald Trump received 84% of the vote in last year's election. As the severe storm season continues, remember the Weather Watch never sleeps. In the News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. Uh, we're going to visit with David Montgomery. He is the author of a new book, just came out in May. It's called Growing a Revolution bringing our soil back to life and david thanks for being on our program today and tell us more about this book what's the purpose behind it sure joe you know it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and talk to you and the purpose behind it is really that i think that the degradation of the world's soils is probably one of the biggest social and environmental crises humanity faces that most people don't really know about and i'm a geologist and i got interested in this problem through looking at how soils form and how they're eroded, and I wrote 10 years ago a book called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations that looked at how 
the way people treated land throughout history had really influenced the course and fate of human civilizations. And that got me really interested in thinking about, well, could we avoid the cycle of land degradation and social vulnerability and collapse that had plagued ancient societies? Could we avoid that this time around on a global scale? And so I started looking into uh, farming practices, how people are farming around the world, and actually had the, the opportunity to speak at a conference uh, that Howard G. Buffett was talking about what he calls his brown revolution, the idea of rebuilding the world's, for the fertility of the world's soils. And the idea really captivated me, and I looked into it, visited farmers around the world, and ended up uh, at the end of the process writing this book, Growing a Revolution, because I was really impressed with the way that creative and innovative farmers are really turning around this ancient problem of land degradation and are rebuilding the fertility of their land. I think it's a hugely important issue and problem that more people need to know about. We made some pretty good progress here in the last few years, but we need to go farther according to your book. Is that right? Yeah. Essentially, if you if you look um, at the, the recipe that seems to really work around the world, uh, it involves sort of three key steps of going to no-till farming or ditching the plow, covering up or growing cover crops to keep the soil protected, because if you erode and lose the soil, it, you know, you're just playing out the, the, a game of decades to centuries before um, things really go south for the people doing it. Um, but also growing a diversity of crops. Um, those three things together are really sort of a recipe for rebuilding the fertility of soil, for supporting and cultivating the beneficial soil life in the soil that farmers can can put to work for them instead of trying to work against that as as is typical under modern conventional agriculture. So yeah, there's been tremendous advances in the last um, you know over the last century really in terms of slowing the pace of soil erosion. Um, but the idea of reintegrating the ancient ideas of cover crops and crop rotations that are a little more diverse than we typically have today, um, and getting those those ancient ideas to work with the modern technology behind no-till agriculture. Uh, and, and all the other elements of modern technology. That's the really sort of new um, marriage here, uh, is trying to get those modern technologies and ideas and understanding about soil ecology integrated with these ancient practices. And from what I saw, um, and farms around the world, you know, large farms, small farms, conventional farms, organic farms, uh, subsistence farms, large-scale commodity crop operations, the same principles work to promote soil health on all those settings because they really line up with the way soil fertility actually works. Uh, so I'm really quite excited about the potential for adopting this suite of practices to, to really revolutionize, if you will, um, conventional agriculture and make it not just as productive as it is today, but more profitable for farmers by greatly reducing the need for expensive agrochemical inputs and, and reducing the need for diesel. David Montgomery is our guest here on the Roll Radio Network, the author of the new book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. And do we need to be using precision ag a little more deeply on integrating these types of practices along all these platforms? Yeah, exactly. And, that, you know, and then, frankly, I was really skeptical, uh, is probably the right word, going into visiting farmers around the world that the same set of principles might work in all those different settings. Uh, but what I saw... Uh, farmers having done to their land in terms of bringing the soil back to life, and, you know, both literally and figuratively, um, really impressed me that these those three simple principles of uh, minimizing soil disturbance, integrating cover crops, and growing a more diverse array of crops 
whether in a rotation or all at once in the field, like you might be able to do in a small farm in Africa, say, um, that those general principles were really pretty universal. They, they tracked with all those different contexts and settings. What was different were the actual practices that one would undertake as a farmer in, a di- in different settings to implement those principles. So, you know, the, the practices you would use on a small subsistence farm in Ghana that, I, that would be very different than on a large uh, cropping and, and, and cattle operation in the Dakotas. Um, but the general principles really seem to work, and they work complementarily, those three, with one another. And from what I could gather, the really big effects in terms of building soil health and fertility rapidly and maintaining it over the long run with lower need for um, supplemental chemical use was was really achieved by integrating all three of those elements. Um, and that's sort of a whole new philosophy of farming, if you will, and the thinking that the way that we have tended to promote agriculture in the developed world for the last century virtually has been through intensive tillage, um, large uses of fertilizers and agrochemicals, and growing just one or two key crops. These three principles of of what's called conservation agriculture really flip that script on its head in each case, yet it's not really the typical argument that our arguments we typically have over agriculture in the U.S. of sort of conventional versus organic, GMO crops versus non-GMO crops. This is a whole different way of looking at things that can help farmers of all stripes across the board by prioritizing, enhancing the health of the soil, their fundamental resource. That is David Montgomery with his perspective from his new book, Growing a Revolution, with us here on the Roll Radio Network. You can find that in bookstores near you or online as well. I'm Joe Gangwish. Next, let's talk with Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. We just couldn't muster any uh, optimism in this uh, livestock futures market today. No, we sure couldn't. Uh, going to finish mostly lower uh uh, with exceptions being uh, some of the de- very deferred contracts and uh, the rest all lower couldn't muster uh, any strength whatsoever so it was a little bit of a carryover from last week especially in the cattle uh, the uh, you know because cash just didn't perform as well as everybody had thought and obviously the cutouts uh, have taken some dramatic drops and today uh, noon was another drop of the choice, so the, you know it. It's kind of like almost a broken record year, and, and uh, uh, noticeably uh, some bear spreading taking place in the live cattle. The feeders did manage to bounce pretty well off the lows, despite the fact that grain uh, all higher because of uh, weather concerns, um, but. Uh, we did manage to close well off our lows, but still lower for the day. Uh, and over in the hogs, a uh, little bit lower, uh, a little bit of a surprise. Cash seems to be holding in there pretty well. Cutouts were off a little bit, though, and I think that was uh, uh, after seeing uh, last week, the way we ended the last couple of days, we're, we seem to be kind of range-bound all of a sudden now, and uh, uh, we're, we're struggling in the hogs. So, uh we may be in for some changes here in the hog complex uh, next uh, few weeks. Thanks, Joe. Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. You can reach him at 800-328-0134. Dewey Nelson reporting.
Bank Research and Agribusiness just released their latest report looking at declining wheat acres. I'm Shaylee Peters for the Rural Radio Network. And here to visit with us today about that is Stephen Nicholson, a grain and oil seeds analyst with Rabo Bank Research and Agribusiness Group. And Stephen, let's just jump into talking about the report itself. No, thank you, Shaylee. It, it is a very interesting time in wheat, and it, it I did not make the title up. Someone else did that for me, which is good. But, yeah, wheat's really going on right now, and we have been in extreme volatility and i don't think that we anticipated be this extreme um but i think there's a lot of things and i let's talk a little bit about we've obviously wheat acres have been declining and and when you when you have acres declining like they have in wheat and and we've been able to keep production high enough yield has increased to offset that but when you have some sort of a production issue which is not really the issue this year um you don't have the cushion and so i think the market over time, when we look forward, is going to respond a lot more volatile, like we're seeing now, if there's a production issue. But I think what you're seeing now, what's happening, is that we're getting this hard red, hard red winter wheat crop out of the ground and finding that it's okay, that it's, it's better than we thought, but the quality is not there. And so and now you've got people on, on the end user side, flour millers, saying, well, now what am I going to do? And so you go back and you look and oh, well, if I need protein, I'll go to hard red spring wheat because I need hard wheat. So we go there, but that that crop is even smaller than hard red winter wheat. And so you see Minneapolis futures skyrocket because they because they see that demand coming from you know flour millers and bakers. Um, and so you see that market going up both in futures and also in bases. And then you see that spread between Kansas City and Minneapolis get a lot more volatile. And that's probably one of the features in the in the piece in the article in the in the note we wrote talking about how over the last 10 years you have seen that spread between Kansas City and Minneapolis go out or widen and get a lot more volatile. And we're seeing that today. Um, but I think the other thing we probably should say a little bit what's happening today is that. You know, we've seen us, other issues around the world. When we look at Ukraine has been dry in central Ukraine, there's been some relief there. France has been a little bit concerned about the wheat crop there. And the fact is that you had seen and, and we don't want to target the funds, but we do want to say that, you know, a lot of investment money has gone into wheat on the short side, betting on a big crop, betting on, you know, continued bearish wheat prices. And when they saw some of these issues arise, they thought, uh-oh, we need, to, we need to cover our short, and so you got that big pop up. And as we look going forward, because this has been a slow and steady decline over the last you know, couple of decades, but it, seemed to almost, it seems to almost be heightened at this point. Uh, do you see the pace picking up moving forward, you know, kind of running off the tracks here? Yeah, good question. You're right. It does seem like the pace has picked up, and I think part of it is because when you look at corn and soybean prices, previous to now, and we'll say kind of five, six years ago, you know, there was a lot more profitability there. But I think the fact is you've got wheat prices now, and we believe at a fairly low, or wheat acre, excuse me, at a fairly low ebb, and that now prices will tick up to try to track some acres back because we need we need a little more cushion. We we have plenty of feed wheat. We just don't have good quality wheat. And so the market's going to have to adjust to that and track acres back and attract quality wheat coming back and production that way. So I think we're near a low ebb at this point. All right. Thanks so much, Steve Nicholson. He is a Rabo Research Food and Agribusiness Group Grains and Oil Seeds Analyst discussing their most recent report, Wheat's Going On, What's Going On in uh, the World of Wheat, especially here very recently we see that volatility. For more on this, you can visit RuralRadio.com. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Shaylee Peters.
Dewey Nelson on the World Radio Network. As we traded in the higher end of the range when we closed today on the Chicago futures, Kansas City wheat futures as well, and even Minneapolis wheat futures. With us is John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago, publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. Well, it's hard to imagine that uh, this weather premium won't uh, continue to, I guess, increase. Yeah. Now, we kind of hit some ups here where the market's moved very quickly, and you're going to get what's kind of happened in the Minneapolis contract. You're going to see a lot of suction to the downside. I'm speaking more soybeans at this point when uh, the market has, you know, rallies, and then all of a sudden it comes back. Um, shorter term here, I think the... You know, the trend is your friend, not just in, in, the, in the price, in the weather as well. And just historically, it's really tough to find a year when the central U.S. weather forecast will reverse in the middle of July. So look for more of this. Uh, I think the WASI on Wednesday won't be very bullish or bearish one way or the other because I don't think they'll confirm a lot of it. But uh, this could be just the beginning. And you look at uh, resistance levels being, uh, I guess, trashed. Yeah, I mean, we got above that high. I guess you can call 1043 as a level on the beans to really to look at. Um, but beyond that, and this is a fact, I'm not, you know, this is something I kind of looked at this morning. We've seen a run to four, 435 plus every year the last decade on, on front month corn. So I got to think we're going to go there as well uh, if, if everything would continue. And at this point, nothing's changed. Uh, you know, forecasts, I think the rains we're getting were forecasted for. Um, they're all part of the, the you know, the, the short-term forecast that we've been sitting essentially sitting on for couple of days now um, but if you look past the five day even these parts are going to dry out so um, half the crop looks pretty good they say east of the mississippi river maybe east i-35 there but uh you know obviously you get into northwest iowa the dakotas even the nebraska dryland areas are going to be really really hit here in the next couple of weeks so won't the traders take an opportunity to uh, really take profits tomorrow you think so so on the corn side uh you know, that's the tough trade, in my opinion. I think beans have a little more direct direct upward action, given the funds being so short. Uh, and I think they have covered a lot of that. But there's way more to go here before we get to those highs. We, we've kind of hit those highs where you could see some profit taking. Uh, on the corn, though, we're in the middle of the range. So while I think, you know, this, we got through $4 September and we closed. So now that, that was kind of a first, I guess, hurdle to get through. And then, um, you know, now it'll be, I think, that, that 420, 430 level. And, and farmers have a decision at the 440. I, 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 you know, there's a lot of price action there you can take advantage of. There you go. I just was going to say, you got to market some of this crop right now. Yeah, 440. But it'll be tough if it's dry. I mean, that's the hard thing about getting good prices. You know, it's a gamble. It is a gamble. Thanks. John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst, Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. Go to danielsagmarketing.com. I'm Dewey Nelson.